Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for uh, the words of, of that song that were really just the beginning of this prayer. I pray, God, that, that you would meet us here today. You, you promise you, you will do so in your word, that, that, you're, that you're not far from us, that you're, that you're present, in fact, an ever-present help particularly in times of trouble. And so I, I pray, God, that however we walked into this room this morning, whether it was uh, feeling very connected to you and feeling fully as though we can trust in you, and if that's the case, God, I'm so grateful for that. But for some of us, we walked into this room in, in places where maybe we, we trust to an extent but, but reserve some level of, of trust I pray that you would meet us here and that we wouldn't just check our worries at the door or, or, or kind of put those in our back pocket. God, I pray that we would, we would lay them in front of us and, and say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. This is, this is how I'm hurting. This is what I need help with because you're a God who says you'll help. And so I pray that, that we would recognize that you're interested in the fullness of who we are and you, uh, you invite us to trust you with the fullness of who we are. So I pray that we would move in that direction today. And as we come to your word, I pray that your word would change our hearts and our hearts would be changed for your service. And it's in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus that we pray, amen. So I'd like to tell you a little bit uh, about a trip that I took in 2004 to, to start here. In 2004, I had a chance to travel with some missionaries to the Arctic Circle in Russia, which is a really incredible thing. Um, we were there to, uh, to do a, a camp for middle school and high school students, an English camp, but the, but the curriculum was, uh, was the scriptures. So we got to teach the scriptures and we got to open the word and, and, and talk about who Jesus is and why that matters. And, and, and the week that we were there in the Arctic Circle was, was one I'll never forget. The getting there was a difficult thing, I'm gonna be honest. It was 24 hours of planes and airports to get to Moscow. We were there for about 24 hours and then we took a train 30 hours north to the Arctic Circle in Russia. All this while Abby, uh, my wife, was uh, pregnant with our first and she was in the first trimester and, and that's synonymous with morning sickness and travel sickness and she had it and it was really rough. And so the travel itself was not the best part of the trip uh, for us, uh, but, but it really was an amazing time. We stayed at the, on this Arctic lake that was surrounded by mountains at a former KGB retreat. It was, it was bizarre and wonderful all at the same, the same time. But while we were there, we formed relationships with the kids that were there and one that we spent probably the most time with or connected with most was this young guy named Dima. Dima was the son, is the son of the pastor who was running the camp, essentially running the camp. And so we would stay up late into the night. It was the summer in the Arctic Circle and so it never got dark. At about two in the morning, the, the sun would go just below the mountains and it would be dusk for about three hours and then it would be uh, 5 a.m. the sun would come up and so we, we stayed up late because it always felt like day and so we would talk about what it meant to be a Christian in our own context. And, he, and Dima would talk about what it was like to be a Christian in Kondalaksha, Russia, a place that, that had really been decimated after the fall of communism. When the, when the USSR uh, fell apart, uh, the, the industry that propped up that town left with it. And so alcoholism and poverty were as common there as the four months of dark in the winter. And so it was hard, it was hard to live there and it was hard to be a Christian 
there. And I would share my context for what it meant to be a Christian in America and how we, how we live through that and different challenges, certainly, uh, but there are challenges nonetheless. And I remember one night in this conversation, he, he looked at me and he said, I feel sorry for you. He said, you don't need God. And I said, well, of course, of course I need God. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know you need God, but it's easy for you to forget. See, you can, you can go to, to college and pretty much, if, if you want to do that, there's access for that for, for a vast majority of people. And then you can get the job and the car and the house and you can pile those things up and call those your goal, your aim. And you, for, you can forget that you need God. And he said, here, it's not like that. We don't have that challenge. We know we need to trust Jesus because he's all we've got. Trust is a, is a buzzy thing right now. A lot of people are talking about trust. Uh, different reports are coming out about this, studies, different things. I read an article recently that said, trust is the commerce of the new global economy. Yet we see study after study that says, trust is eroding. We don't only trust less statistically, but we also are inclined to trust less, which means we're more embedded in our own opinions than, than maybe we ever have been statistically. So why is this? Why do we trust less if trust is so important? Well, it's because trust is hard. Okay, great, that's it. But, but that's it is, that's the answer. Trust, trust is hard. We experience this from time to time. On any given day, you'll experience this in your workplace, in Target, wherever, in our own homes. Um, I'll give an example of, of uh, trust issues in my own house uh, to be vulnerable with you guys. About a year and a half ago, we uh, moved into a new house, and it's a blessing, and we love it. But there's one particular aspect of this house that, that we don't love necessarily. We just haven't gotten around to fixing it yet, and it's this giant cactus that's on the side of the house. Not like a normal-sized cactus, but like if a cactus ate another cactus and, and had multiple cactus babies and they all just lived on one cactus base, that's what this thing is. I mean, it's massive. It's not uh, particularly desirable or aesthetically pleasing. We just haven't gotten around to taking it out yet. And so we knew it was going to be a big undertaking, so we sat the kids down and we said, hey, We've never had a cactus in our yard before, so let's get some ground rules for the cactus. You're not familiar with them. And it's not one of those cactus that look uh, particularly dangerous. It doesn't have the big spikes on it. It looks smooth. But we said, here's the thing. It's a trick because it's got these little quills on it. So if you touch it, you get them in your, in your finger and it can get infected. So here's the best rule, family rule. Just don't touch the cactus, right? That's a clear boundary, pretty well-reasoned boundary. Don't, don't touch the cactus. And for the most part, my kids, uh, they, they, they kind of trusted this and, and went along with it, save one. Now, if you know my family, I don't like to out my kids or, or kind of like embarrass them, but um, you probably know who it is. Uh, she went outside and, <laughs> and, uh, and was playing, and then eventually she comes in one day and she has these quills all over her hand. And, and we said, what, what happened? What, what, what seems like the rule was not necessarily honored. What happened there? And, and she said, well, I touched the cactus. And I was like, well, I beg to differ because if you touched it, it would just be on your finger, but it's all over your hand. There's something else that happened there. And she said, well, I grabbed it. <laughs> you grabbed the cactus. She said, yeah, I grabbed the cactus. I said, well, why did you do that? Didn't we tell you not to grab the cactus? She said, yes, I remember you told me not to grab the cactus. And so we said, why did you grab the cactus? She said, well, I just thought you were wrong. That was it. I just thought you were wrong. I just didn't, you know, like you said it, but I thought you were wrong. See, trust is a difficult thing. As we continue in this nine conversations series, we're going to look today at a conversation that happens in Mark chapter nine. This is 
probably my favorite chapter and definitely my favorite gospel, and it's Jesus having a conversation with a guy who is in a really tough place, a really difficult place. And as we walk through this conversation, here's what, I, here's what I'm hoping to accomplish. Here's what I hope we do together. I hope we admit that trust is hard. Let's just admit it. Trust is a difficult thing. And I, and I think we should look at false solutions to trust. The false solution to trust says, if trust is hard, let's just not do it. I'll just trust in myself and myself alone. I think that's a false solution. And then we're going to look for a better solution by asking the question, is Jesus trustworthy? So that's what we're after today. But to give a little context for Mark chapter 9, uh, and I think these things are, are important, this event occurs in three of the Gospels. So it's in, in Mark, which we'll look at today, but it's also in Luke and Matthew. But Mark spends the most time on it, actually twice as long. He seems to really want to sit in this moment uh, for a little while. This is interesting because Mark is the smallest Gospel, the shortest of the Gospels. So when he spends a long time on something, it's probably worth paying attention to. And this encounter with this guy who's in this difficult situation, uh, encounter with Jesus and this guy, happens directly following a true mountaintop experience. Just before this encounter, Jesus takes three of his best friends and followers, Peter, James, and John. They go up to a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. That's a church way of saying his full glory was on full display. In this moment, they knew that Jesus was the Son of God. There was no doubt anymore, and everything was just right. Everything they had wanted, the kingdom of God being viewable in their presence was happening. And Peter, maybe rightly, says, let's stay. Let's not go anywhere. Everything's just right, right here. Let's stay here forever. But Jesus says, no, we have to go back down. We have to come down from this mountainside as though to communicate I didn't come so that things could be all right for a few. I came so that it could be right for all. And it's a reminder to us, I think, of our call to, to, to not remove ourselves from the need of people, but to move into the needs of people. And so Jesus does that. They move down the mountainside, and this is where we pick up the story in Mark 14. It's in your bulletin. If you get your Bible or your Bible app, uh, you can pull that up. We'll be walking through this piece by piece as we go. But in verse 14... After they've come down from the mountain, it says they came to the other disciples. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. I'm gonna stop there for just a second. I know for some of you, you just you kind of had a glaze over, kind of checkout moment, like, oh, demons, spirits, I, I'm, not, I'm not into to all that stuff. Um, I encourage you, go back uh, on our website and listen to Kaylee's sermon from two weeks ago on, on, on spirits and, and demons. Uh, I'm not gonna get into it too much, but, but I want you to kind of stick with me because I think it's clear from the scriptures that there are spiritual realities that manifest in our physical world. That's what's going on here. That's what we're going to dig into. So this spirit robs him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. The father says, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replies, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? So they come down from, from this mountain and they meet a crowd. 
a crowd of, of Jewish leaders, the other disciples, and also uh, this father who's in this desperate, desperate state. And there seems to be a last resortness to the father's words. He says he came looking for Jesus, but he couldn't find him, so he trusted his son to, to the disciples. We learn from Luke's gospel that it was his one and only son, which meant a lot in the culture of the day. He trusted, it's like, I don't know where else to go, so I'll trust the disciples. Can you please take away this thing that is seizing him? Can you please just take it away? And it didn't work. It failed. It's Father's Day. A lot of you guys are fathers. I'm a father. And if you're like me, you know that crippling feeling of not being able to fix your kids when they're hurting. You know, there's the, there's the scrape of the knee when they fall down on their bike, that's one thing, and just to see them screaming like that's so tough, or maybe if you have an infant, they have ear infections, they just scream all, all the time, and you just, there's this helpless, I wish I could fix it. Maybe they're struggling in school, and you wish you could just help them get through it, get, help that knowledge get in their head that I just wish I could, could fix it. This father's having to watch his son, his only son, go through something that robs him of speech and creates debilitating seizures. We would go to great lengths to, to, to fix what's wrong with our kids. He's going to a great length to do the same. But at some point, his strategies, or even the support of the people around him, it just falls short, and he's desperate. What do you do when all your strategies fall short, all your fix-it strategies fall short? Well, maybe this is the place where you see that Jesus is, is what you need because Jesus is all you have. That's what the father does. He's like, you're all I've got. You're the last resort. He goes to Jesus because he's at the end of himself. I do think it's worth noting, though, that the, that the disciples are at the end of themselves as well. Remember, he'd gone up to the mountain with three of them, but the rest of the disciples stayed down to continue the work that Jesus had given them to do. He said, you'll go cast out demons, Jesus said to his disciples. You'll go cast out demons. You'll preach the gospel to the world. And so they just continued on that work and they failed at it. So he sends them out and they, and they couldn't accomplish the task. They couldn't drive out the demons and the teachers of the law are there very likely just to see if Jesus kind of breaks the, the law, if they can get something against him. But, but you've got these two authority figures there. People are wondering who, who's worth listening to. It was thought that the teachers of the law knew more scripture than the disciples, so the disciples couldn't get them on knowledge. So if they couldn't work these miracles, if they couldn't do the work of God, then maybe their credibility was at risk. And what do we do when our credibility is at risk? We get nervous, and, 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 we, and we start to, to try and push others to the side, and we argue, and we use the people that are closest to us as punching bags. That's what Jesus chooses to walk back into. He could have stayed on the mountain, but he didn't. He chooses to walk back into a situation with a desperate father who is seeking, seeking him out as a last resort. And he walks back into the failure of those closest to him all at once. And here's how he responds. How long do I have to put up with you? I mean, it seems so harsh, this response of Jesus. How long do I have to put up with you? This desperate father brings his son as a last resort. Please heal my son. Please do something. How long do I have to put up with you? And if this is your picture of who Jesus is, and it makes him hard to trust, not believe in, but it makes him hard to trust, I'm, I'm really sorry. 
If you see Jesus as somebody that when you bring him your problems, he just says, how long do I have to put up with you? It probably would be really hard to trust him. And that's probably a good way of interpreting this scripture if, if we didn't know what happens a little further in the story. See, Jesus answers his own question. How long do I have to put up with you? How long will I stay with you? Jesus answers his own question forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The scriptures say that Jesus left the height of heaven to come to show us how much we are loved. And more than that, he went to the cross so that we could become reconciled to God. To say that there's nothing, not even death itself, that can hold love back. He was resurrected from the dead. He answers his own question. He went all the way to the tomb and back for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. How long will he stay with you? Forever. And he'll continue to heal broken hearts that have all but stopped hoping. Jesus' very next words. Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? I'm blown away by this question. I've read this scripture I don't know how many times, and I've always seen the power of Jesus in this conversation, in this interaction, in this event. I don't think I've ever seen his heart, though. People are pushing on all sides. The disciples are in a state of confusion and disappointment. The teachers of the law are trying to check boxes to see if Jesus has done anything wrong. This, this father in a desperate state, and now the boy is convulsing on the ground, and Jesus slows everything down. And he looks into the eyes of the father, and he says, how long have you been suffering? And the thing is, he didn't have to ask. He could have just on his way healed him. He didn't even have to look at the kid if he didn't want to. He could have healed him and moved on. And everybody would have known his power. Everybody would have known his capability in that moment. It would have been amazing. And everybody would have been in awe. He could have just kept on moving. But he stopped. He's being very Jesus-like in this moment. He's trying to connect. He shows compassion. And he was moved to the point that he entered into the pain of the story. Harvard Business School professor Frances Frey uh, has this report where she says, trust is the foundation of every action. And a key component in trust is empathy. So trust is built between you and I when, when my empathy is directed at you, when I care about what's happening to you. People if they don't believe that you're in it for them, they won't trust you. And, and so it makes sense, all these polls that are telling us that, that trust is eroding, that people don't trust each other because we don't often take the time that it takes to build empathy. We don't, we don't create space to be for other people. So how do you build trust? The father knew that that, that, that Jesus was capable. He'd heard the stories. He'd almost certainly heard the stories of Jesus healing the lady who was bedridden or the story of the healing of, of the leper, people that, that no one would care about. Now he can be returned to his family. Or, or the story of, of how Jesus 
takes a man to the center of the synagogue on the Sabbath and stands him up in front of everybody and says, hey, this guy that was in the margins that couldn't be a part of your gathering, look at this. And he, he says, stretch your hand out. And he's healed right in front of everybody. He says, now you're part of the family. There's nothing holding you back anymore. He had heard those stories. That's why the father went to Jesus because he knew Jesus was capable, but that's only part of trust. Is Jesus empathetic? Because if Jesus isn't empathetic, even though he's capable, he's not trustworthy. If Jesus doesn't care about your problems, even though he's capable of fixing them, he's not trustworthy. And we experience this from time to time. Maybe we have the, the ability to, to fix this or that problem in this or that way, but if we're not in it for other people, people won't trust us. They won't come to us. By the way, uh, the study from, from Professor Frey, she says the worst challenge, the biggest challenge to empathy that we experience in our modern society, cell phones. Well, how's that? Well, cell phones, how we, how we take in information, particularly social media, it's so easy for empathy to disappear because it isn't a human space. It's profile pictures and opinions in a sea of profile pictures and opinions. You can hate a profile picture and an opinion, a stance, a, 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 a way of thinking. It's a lot harder to hate a person. And so what happens in, in, in the digital world is, is we dehumanize. We make people into their own position and put them in boxes and, and, and that's it. And this may sound overly dramatic, but it's true. Dehumanization is the strategy of those who perpetuate hate. But Jesus here shows empathy. It's on full display in the question to the Father. How, how long has it been like this? Jesus takes time to hear the story. He takes the clock away. He slows everything down. And he allows space for this father to feel. See, the father was giving a rundown of the facts. I brought my son. Here's what the condition is to your disciples. It didn't work. Can you do something? It was, it was this kind of like matter of fact thing. But Jesus, like, how long has it been like this? He's allowing the father to actually feel it. The question itself is implying Jesus is saying, like, look, I know it feels like you can't slow down, but trust me. You can trust me in this crisis. I believe that there is a question that Jesus wants to ask every single one of us in this room. I believe he wants to ask you today. And he wants to listen to your answer. How long has it been like this? Let's talk. And the father reveals his heartache in his response to to Jesus' question, how long has it been this way? He trusts Jesus at least enough to be honest. The latter part of verse 21, from childhood, the father answers. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. See, the groundwork of trust had been laid. Jesus is empathetic. He's asking questions. He's allowing the father to feel. He's in it for the father. And there's a sense in which this man, in his desperation, is willing to risk something by coming to Jesus. But he seems a little bit reserved about it. It makes sense. He's been disappointed. I can imagine he didn't want to hurt again. 
He didn't want to get his hopes up, so he didn't want to go all in. That's how you can both believe and not believe at the same time. It's as though he's saying, uh, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have anywhere else to turn, and I don't think this is going to work. So I'm not going to get emotionally attached to this desired outcome, but it can't hurt to ask. And I think what Jesus says to this is put some skin in the game. Bring some hope to the table because you've come to the right place. My son, uh, Joseph Lee, my youngest, came home from Haiti two years ago. Um, if, you, uh, if you have ever seen him or you know him, uh, he's, you'll see him out there. Uh, he is full of energy and full of life, and he is wonderful. But bringing him home was a process, and there were delays and complications. Um, and I like to refer to this as the season where I was too scared to pray. Because we just didn't know if we were going to get him home. There were these difficulties, and it kept being delayed and delayed and delayed. And, and, and so my prayers kind of sounded like faith, but, but it wasn't. It, it, I was just too scared to pray. Because what if I pray that God brings my son home this week or this month, and he doesn't? What do I do then? So I'd pray things like, God, your will be done in this. You're, you're good, and uh, so... If you bring him home, that's so good. If you don't bring him home, that's okay. You, you're, you're still good. And that sounds like trust, but it's fear. Because those words are true. They just don't risk anything. I couldn't bring myself to hope for something that might not happen, so I didn't ask. Because if I, if I hoped for something and, and he didn't give it to me, what does that mean about him? So I'll just trust only me. I'll, just, I'll trust in what I can accomplish, what I can do on my own, and I'll just distance myself from a God who can make things happen. Sometimes our big need is accompanied by really little prayers. I think that's because trust is hard, because it's risky. But the false solution is to say, I'll trust only me. I'll go it alone. I won't risk trusting anybody else, not even God, maybe especially not God. Instead, we should be risky. That's what Abby calls precarious prayer. It's not reducing our prayers to the point where we don't ask Jesus of anything. It's praying in a way that hopes and trusts that he'll do what's right, even if I don't get what I want, because I might not. It's going to Jesus with the trust of a child. A, ch a child, when they trust, they don't mandate the parent do this or that. When a child trusts, they believe that the parent is capable and that the parent is empathetic, that he cares or she cares. And so whether the child gets the desire of their heart or not, they can trust in the parent who is capable and who is empathetic. The invitation isn't to lose hope. The invitation is to trust. So are there are places where you have resigned yourself to really small prayers that don't risk anything or no prayers at all because you can't stand being disappointed, can't stand recognizing that you might not be in control. Are there places where hope has dried up because he left or because you lost the job or because they were so unkind or because that thing hurts so much still? Are there places where disappointment with God are leading to you being shut off to him? If there are, Jesus' invitation 
is the same invitation of, of, of this father to come with the desperation this father had that says, if all I can muster is an honest, if you can prayer, it is so much better than a do whatever you want because I can't handle being disappointed prayer that doesn't risk anything and leaves no room for hope. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Luke's version of this account tells us that after taking this boy by the hand and as this boy is processing that he's been freed up from this thing that had held him captive for so long as he's processing this, this thing that sent this father into a desperate state, Luke says Jesus gave the boy back to his father. How long have you been suffering turns into be reconciled, be reunited, because that's what Jesus was after. Because he's not just a miracle worker, he's empathetic. He cares. Mark includes this section of scripture with another conversation. It's short. And it seems really disconnected from the conversation that we just dug into together. But I actually think the same thing is at the heart. It's an issue of trust. In verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him publicly, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive out the demon? He replied, that kind only comes out by prayer. So Jesus' followers, they come to him and they say, look, you sent us out to do your work, to, to cast out demons, to free people up, to preach the gospel, and we were doing it, and we were doing a good job at it, and then we tried to do it here, and it just didn't work. Why? And he responds, this type only comes out with prayer. Now, there are a few ways of interpreting that. Let me walk through a couple of them. It could be that Jesus is saying, like, okay, well, you, you forgot the playbook. Remember the playbook? The some that come out with prayer, some you have to do double-barrel Lysol through the room, and that clears them out. Some it's a paper-rock-scissors battle, right? You just got the wrong playbook. This is the prayer one. Could be that. I don't think it is. Could be sarcastic Jesus. I kind of like sarcastic Jesus, to be honest. Maybe they ask him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he's like, that one only comes out with prayer. And they're all like, is that a joke? Are we supposed to laugh at it? John, you always laugh at his jokes. We don't really get his jokes. You laugh first and see if we're supposed to laugh. Could be that. I don't think that was it either. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding them of something that they should never forget that we should never forget, that he sent them out with his authority and they decided to go out on their own authority and they forgot to trust him. That type only comes out with prayer. You gotta stay connected to the source of power, to the source of the authority. Jesus is reminding them at the heart of who we are and what we're called to do and what he's inviting us to participate in is connection with him. We can't go out proclaiming his kingdom without him or else we'll just proclaim our own kingdom that might look a little bit like his. Jesus is saying, stay connected. I believe the disciples forgot that Jesus was what they needed most because they thought they had enough. And so they went on their way with their calling and with the authority that he had given them and said, thanks, Jesus, we'll see you when we get back. We'll work this out on our own. 
rather than just realizing that they needed to stay in close relationship to him as they lived out their calling. Jesus says that one only comes out with prayer. You have to stay connected. Mechanics wasn't the issue. Trust was and is the issue. See, it seems whether you come to Jesus at the bottom, right, broken, just a little bit of hope, just a sliver of hope, and you're begging him to do something if he can. Or you come to Jesus on the top. You've followed him for a long time. You've seen him do incredible things. It seems whether at, at the top or the bottom, trust in him matters. So is he capable? Is he empathetic? Because if he is, he's trustworthy. Whether you're in the middle of the crisis or you're being asked to do something bigger than you ever imagined you would be invited into and can accomplish on your own. Trust is hard. It's worth admitting. But it's no solution to say, you know what? I'll trust only myself. I won't risk trusting anybody else. That's no solution. So for some of us here, we walked in the room this morning with just the faintest hope. Our, our, our circumstances are all out of whack. Our circumstances are not good. They're not okay, and we're not okay. Maybe this is the place where you can see that Jesus is what you need because Jesus is all you have. Maybe it's time to look for him, to call out to him, to seek him. And maybe for some of us in this room, we, we've seen God do incredible things, great things, and we've been a part of it but it doesn't seem to be happening right now and you're wondering what's changed, what's different, why, why? Why was I a part of it before and now I'm not a part of it now? It might be that it's time to return to the source and not let the call, has, the call that Jesus has placed on your life outpace your understanding of your need for him in your life. Maybe that's the place where you can realize that Jesus is what you need because Jesus is all you have. Either one and everywhere in between. Trust in him matters. Look for him. Call out to him and seek him. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for how you cared about this father. Thanks that that was recorded for us to talk about today. Thanks that at times when believing in you is easy but trusting in you is hard, we can return to stories like this to see that you're not just a miracle worker, though you are. You're empathetic, you care. And because you care, we can trust you because we know you're capable. Father God, I pray for those that are going through a difficult time right now. I pray that you would meet them in a unique way. I don't know how you'll do it, God, but you're a big God and you'll figure it out. And for those that are looking to continue the work that you have called us to, I pray that you would give us a fresh spirit, a fresh wind that would remind us that we can't go it alone, that the kingdom that we are meant to, to be a part of and meant to build is one with you at the center and not us. Thank you for being trustworthy. I pray that we would trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.